This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Good evening. My name is Dale Soden. I'm a professor of history at Whitworth University, and I have been asked to reflect on the life and times of George Whitworth in honor of the bicentennial of his birth. This is a live podcast, and normally I might be moving about the room a little bit more freely, but tonight I will be tied to the podium so that we hopefully can see and hear as well as possible. So again, thank you for coming, those of you who are here in the room, and thank you to all loyal Whitworthians for your support for the university throughout these many, many years. In 1907, on the occasion of George Whitworth's death, Seattle historian Clarence Bagley said this of the longtime Presbyterian minister, quote, probably no resident in the state of Washington has left so deep an impression upon public affairs or so wide a range as George Whitworth, end quote. Perhaps for many Whitworth alums and students and faculty, this might be a bit of a surprising statement for mostly what we know George Whitworth for centers on his efforts to found Whitworth College. And of course, we also know him and love him for his ability to sport this crazy neck beard uh, that we have come to love so much. In fact, I was in the Phoenix airport just the other day and I actually saw a person that I thought was wearing the neck beard. And I almost stopped that person to take a photograph for tonight's presentation, but I decided to let it, let it go. But nevertheless, uh, we have made our founder into something of a second mascot next to the pirate. And we have great fun uh, presenting him in various uh, costumes and uh, contexts. And again, I think that's just been great for Whitworth. I think, uh, uh, I think more students at Whitworth know at least what George Whitworth looks like, uh, if not who he is, then probably most students across the country know of the founders of their college. And again, I think all of that is good. But as we recognize the bicentennial of his birth, having been born on March 15, 1816, it seems only appropriate to try and understand why Clarence Bagley made such a sweeping statement about George Whitworth wanted to understand a little bit more about his uh, impact on the state of Washington. And it seems fitting that we look more closely at the complexity of his life, character, and maybe even speculate a little bit about what he might say if he were with us today. As indicated, George Whitworth was born in 1816 in the small town of Boston, England. And thanks to research librarian uh, Nancy Bunker, we have this map of Boston, England, approximately at the time at which Whitworth was born and lived there for a few years. She discovered also that his father, Matthew, was a tailor and a dye maker. Some other accounts have him as a harness maker. Uh, we know less about his mother, Susanna, uh, but we know that George had one sister, Emma, and may have had another sister who died early in her years. We do know, however, that the Whitworths were Baptists. In fact, George was baptized in the church that's in the lower left-hand corner of this, of this uh, photograph, about 1820. While we don't know exactly why the Whitworths began to think about coming to America, perhaps it was like most people uh, in the 19th century, looking to the United States as a land of great opportunity, it's possible 
that they were looking to become uh, a little bit more widely accepted in the country in terms of their Baptist faith, given the fact that the Church of England was, again, the official church uh, of the state of, Eng of uh, Great Britain. Whatever the reason for coming to America, George was 12 years old. And while we don't have a photograph of him at that particular time, he may have looked something like this, a uh, young man of roughly the same, same era. I keep thinking, though, in the light of the rest of his life, what an enormous event it must have been for Whitworth to travel across the Atlantic at age 12 and come to the United States. We know that it did take uh, approximately 30 days. We don't know whether the passing was rough or calm, uh, but we know it took place on the George Washington, a ship similar to this one. And again, apart from being uprooted from friends and family, it must have forced George to confront much of his early childhood anxieties and fears. We don't know exactly really how it impacted him, uh, but it seems really from this point forward that George was largely unafraid to take on challenges, unafraid to take risks. And I think that's a theme that we can see in retrospect about his life that really shapes his character. Well, once arriving in America, Whitworth stayed for a short, the Whitworth stayed for a short period of time in Rochester, New York, before moving to Mansfield, Ohio. After three years, they moved again to Terre Haute, Indiana, and George uh, entered, this is a picture of George, George entered South Hanover College at age 17. Sometime during his college years, George met Mary Elizabeth Thompson from Louisville, Kentucky, and she was the youngest of eight children. The two were married just a few weeks after George graduated in 1838. He was 22, she was 20. And while we don't have a photograph or picture of their wedding ceremony or of Mary at, at uh, age 22, the earliest one we have is her at about age 35. Many of Mary's relatives were Presbyterian ministers and missionaries, and this may have been one of the main reasons that George became a Presbyterian himself. Their first child, James Edwin, came two years after they were married, in 1840. A second child, however, died of about 15 months old. A third child, Frederick Harrison, was born in 1846. John Matthews came two years later in 1848, and their first daughter, Clara, in 1851. Mary taught school as well as piano. So really by the time they, of their first 13 years of marriage, George and Mary were raising four children. During most of the time, however, George was hardly settled in terms of what he was going to do with his life. I think George would have been a bit puzzled by some of our undergraduates about how certain they are, almost at the point at which they step foot on campus, about exactly what they're going to do, because he certainly, he certainly was not. He must not have been convinced that God had called him into any specific vocation, certainly at that point in his life, although he does seem dead set against becoming a farmer. At no point do the Whitworths seem to entertain that possibility. When George and Mary moved to Lancaster, Ohio, he took a position as principal of the local high school. But only a year later, he began studying law and established a practice in Greensburg, Indiana. Um, not that far, at least in location, from where Abraham Lincoln would ultimately begin to practice law. Shortly thereafter, George, moved to, George and Mary moved again to Dayton, Ohio, where he became a prosecuting attorney. 
And then yet again, he changed directions. And in 1844, after being a principal and an attorney, still only six years after graduating from college, he enrolled at the New Albany Theological Seminary in Indiana. And it's maybe likely that Mary was the one who pushed him into the study of theology and into the ministry. He was ordained in the Presbyterian Church in 1848 and for the next five years served two Presbyterian churches, one in Kenilton, Indiana, and then across the river at Hawksville, Kentucky. This was a period of growing tension, as most of you know, in the United States over the issue of slavery. And we don't really know what George Whitworth thought about the issue of slavery. It's interesting to me that he lived in a border state, he married someone from Kentucky. It's uh, certainly possible that he was against slavery, but it's also possible that at least tacitly he was uh, approved of, he approved of slavery. It was for the institution of slavery at that particular point in his life. Uh, it's unlikely that he was an abolitionist in the sense that we just don't have any record of that whatsoever. But in any event, he must have had to come to grips at some point with the issue of slavery, at least in his own mind. What we do know is that he still seemed restless. He had a wide, wide range of interests. He seemed to resonate with mostly the era of exploration and discovery. And anyone who would kind of face the unknown. We know he read about early fur traders and explorers uh, such as Lewis and Clark. He became familiar with Washington Irving's book Astoria, which was the account of John Jacob Astor's Pacific Fur Company, which ended up in the far northwest corner of what became the state of Oregon in, in Astoria. And of course, he knew about the missionaries in the Pacific Northwest, the, the Whitmans, the Spaldings, the Lees, who had come out uh, in the 1830s and, and uh, into the 18, 1840s. Perhaps all of these things conspired to nurture his interest in going west on the Oregon Trail. Beginning in 1851, Whitworth began to promote the idea of a Presbyterian colony in the Pacific Northwest. In the Presbyterian Magazine of 1852, we have this quote that in many ways marks the beginning of the vision of what we might say is Whitworth College or Whitworth University. Quote, it is intended that we shall as soon as possible after settlement establish a good parochial school for the benefit of the children and the youth of the colony. No efforts will be spared to elevate the character of the school to make it an institution of learning of the highest grade. It should be a settled principle that no child or youth connected with the colony shall ever be permitted to grow up without the benefit of a good English education and a thorough religious training." End quote. English education, thorough religious training, really the, the mark of George Whitworth to come. With these ideas in mind, he set about the task of gathering a group of people who might be interested in establishing an, a colony in the Pacific Northwest. At one point, Whitworth convinced nearly 50 families to sign up, but apparently reports of disease and danger from Indians discouraged all but four other families, in addition to the Whitworths, from embarking on the trek along the, the Oregon Trail. The Whitworths were part of one of the great migrations in all of American history. Beginning in the 1830s and extending over the next 30 years, more than 400,000 people made the 2,200-mile trek from Missouri uh, to the Willamette Valley. But the Oregon Trail was no picnic. 
It has been described by more than one historian as the world's longest graveyard, with one body on average being buried about every 80 yards. The number one killer, disease. Influenza, dysentery, Asian cholera, all took their toll on those who ventured west. The Whitworth family band that embarked on the journey to Puget Sound consisted of George and Mary and their children, James Edwin, Frederick, John Matthew, and Clara, who is still a baby. Mary's two nieces, her 70-year-old mother, and two young men named Bell also made up their party. For the first three months, the party rested themselves on Sunday as well as their oxen, and they listened to George give sermons. Uh, on that Sabbath, and we have uh, records not so much of the sermons, but at least of the text that he, uh, he preached, preached on. But again, a sign of how committed he was to his vocation as a Presbyterian minister. But as the journey went on, as they got closer, but nevertheless still some distance, they decided they needed to travel on Sundays and spe speed their way ultimately to, uh, to Oregon. The trip on the Oregon Trail must have, again, forced Whitworth to confront his own fears and anxieties. But he seems to have emerged as a man of strength and conviction, at the same time a person with a pastor's heart. One contemporary said of Whitworth, he was a man of sharp contrasts, of middle height, yet of vigor of mind and body, a softness of speech and an iron will, the manner of a man of the cloth, and the courage of a soldier. So we get this picture of a person who was committed to his calling as a pastor and missionary, and yet still a man of conviction, and courage in many contexts. He seemed able and willing to face down virtually any threat that confronted either him or his family. His diary records the usual Oregon Trail problems of weather, straying or sick cattle, difficult river crossings, mosquitoes, Indian alarms and illnesses. But at least there were no deaths among the Whitworth party from disease, accidents, or Indians. But the diary offers few clues to his innermost thought. There's no mention of manifest destiny or being sent on a mission from God to the Pacific Northwest. He gives the impression of being somewhat stoic, somewhat reserved about it. He later described the trip as, quote, no wise remarkable. Yet, it's hard to believe that he didn't have some concerns, maybe the utmost concerns over baby Clara, uh, about the well-being of his family, and yet he never seems to give a hint of that kind of anxiety. Well, over the course of the journey, four other the families that were uh, with the Whitworths actually peeled off at some point for other destinations, and as a consequence, only the Whitworths completed the trek to Portland. When the Whitworths arrived, there wasn't much to speak of uh, in Portland. Its population was slightly over 800, and approximately 600 of those were, were men, and most of those were clearly not church-going uh, church folk. But almost immediately, George got to work and helped found the first Presbyterian church in Portland in 1854. But instead of staying put, his restlessness seemed to drive him on, and, and he went north of the Columbia River to the budding community of Olympia. He seemed to come with the basic idea, the simple idea for him sta from uh, his standpoint, that he could plant churches and build schools. The first legislature of the newly created territory was then in session in Olympia. 
This was fortuitous for George, again a photograph of roughly the same period of time he, he uh, um, embarked to Olympia. But he seemed, uh, again, uh, being ready for the moment as it allowed to, him to meet the leading political figures of the territory from the, from the very beginning. Apparently his first sermon in the Washington Territory was delivered in this building, the Legislative Hall itself. And he became an early confidant of some of Washington Territory's movers and shakers. George claimed 320 acres, as was his right, just north of the present-day downtown Olympia on the Donation Land Claim Act. He went back to Portland, retrieved his family, and they lived first in a tent and then the split-board shanty while he constructed a more durable home. Mary, again, was responsible for rearing the children. As we shall see, she taught school often with George. She mentions in her own diary how time-consuming the making and mending of clothes uh, were and uh, really how difficult the household chores came to be. This was far from an easy life for women on the frontier, as most of us know. George would be gone for much of the time. But we don't have a lot of evidence, one way or the other, of how she actually thought about his being gone. But we can assume that, again, there were bouts of loneliness. And these were compounded by uh, several severe illnesses that she had uh, during her lifetime. But George was a busy person. In November 1855, he organized the first Presbyterian church in Olympia, which apparently met in this, in this building. Another church at Grand Mound, which was 20 miles uh, south of Olympia, started with seven charter members. And then shortly after that, he organized a church at Chehalis, and this would be a later version of that church. Church building became almost an obsession with Whitworth. He seemed to believe that his calling was to establish a community of Presbyterians almost everywhere he went, a kind of Johnny Appleseed of Presbyterianism. We believe he established somewhere between 15 and 20 churches, although the exact number is still undetermined. But these included churches in Snohomish, Whidbey Island, Renton, Sumner, Kent, Puyallup, and perhaps most famously in Seattle, Seattle First Presbyterian Church, where 40 years later, under the leadership of Reverend Mark Matthews, that church became the largest Presbyterian church in the country in terms of congregational membership. While Whitworth was a church planter and came to be known as the father of Presbyterianism in the state of, of uh, uh, Washington, he might also have been easily named the father of education. Perhaps of all, the thing, all of these things conspired uh, to again make him a, a devotee of education, whether it was public or private or elementary or college. For much of their lives, the Whitworths worked together, and perhaps this was the strength of their relationship to establish schools even out of their own home. The two of them opened up a school in Olympia, and then later up on Woodby Island, Coopville, and then, of course, in Seattle itself. It was reported that if students lived some distance from the school, that they were welcome to stay at the Whitworths' home. It's hard for us, I think, to imagine what it was like to teach school in, that early, in those early days. Here's a photograph of an early uh, schoolhouse, but I know they were much more rudimentary than that. When the first school was established in Olympia in the 1850s, one news re reporter uh, said this in a hopeful fashion, the children heretofore roaming about our streets, listless as Indians, 
will be able to imbibe the knowledge requisite to make them good citizens, good Republicans, and good Christians. But I love this description of early education in Washington Territory by one historian. Frequently, a gang of ruffians, and this is my best effort at a photograph of ruffians, a men grown but illiterate would attend school intermittently for a few weeks in the winter when work was slack. The school afforded a warm rendezvous and a means of social diversion. The more they irritated the teacher and bullied the smaller pupils, the more they exulted in their prowess. Sometimes they were not bad, simply unoccupied and spoiling for excitement, but sometimes they were real desperados, toting guns and bad whiskey, constant terrors to the neighborhoods. Whitworth believed that education was necessary to the transformation of a people in a culture that was largely without guidance, never lost sight of his original dream to start a Presbyterian college in the Pacific Northwest. Well, maybe that's that experience or observation that led Whitworth to believe in order, structure, organization. Shortly after coming to Olympia, Whitworth was elected superintendent of public schools in Thurston County. And a bit later, he was, uh, he was nominated and elected to the superintendent of public schools in King County. His reputation to lead educational institutions led Washington politicians to look to him for leadership of the young University of Washington, located then in downtown Seattle. While they had a great building, they did not have many students. Whitworth was appointed president in 1866, but almost immediately had to face the closing of the university for lack of students. He was reappointed in 1874 and served for two years, and during that time, the first student of the University of Washington graduated, Ms. Clara McCarty. According to the University of Washington's historian, Whitworth's second term, while brief, was significant. He led efforts to publish the first catalog detailing the courses of study in the text textbooks. He also initiated a military department, which was required by the original charter of the university. The men of the college could often be seen conducting military drills on the university grounds. Whitworth seemed to advocate innovation and practicality along with a commitment to the classical liberal arts. He helped initiate a new curriculum that was shorter and more flexible than the classical courses. He was quoted as saying, the aim of the University of Washington was to, quote, enable the youth of the territory of both sexes to obtain a thorough education which should prepare them for the duties of an active life. Schools and churches were opportunities to create community, and in the early years of Washington Territory, community was in short supply. So many settlers lived in profound isolation. This is one of the earliest photographs of Seattle in the 1860s. You can see it, it being almost overwhelmed by dense forest. One early Seattle resident, Catherine Blaine, wife of Minister David Blaine, constantly wrote of rain, poor housing, Indians, and a lack of mail. She said, quote, I do not know of a single person that would, would have come if they had known the true state of things here. Historian Clarence Bagley, looking back at the turn of the century, said, the early associations of frontier life were essentially bad. Males drank, gambled, and ran with women and, and females, though often willing to put up a moral front, behaved no better in private. That was the world that George and Mary Whitworth faced in their early years in Washington Territory. Yet neither of them ever seemed to consider turning around and heading back to the Midwest. They were problem solvers, risk takers, entrepreneurs. That isolation and lack of social networks, however, likely led the Whitworths to believe that one solution might be to control the excess, excessive alcohol. 
Young men without many alternatives naturally gravitated to the saloons in the Pacific Northwest that seemed to spring up almost immediately with any budding community. Whitworth began to draw up petitions and propose the territorial referendum on the prohibition of alcohol. In 1855, the issue came to a vote but was defeated 650 to 564. Yet Whitworth stayed with the issue. He helped found the International Order of Good Templars. The Good Templar Lodges were non-alcoholic saloons. The order attempted to create a masculine appeal through an emphasis on companionship, ritual, quote, wholesome entertainment, clean manhood. Uh, there were pool tables, reading rooms, and my favorite, good talk. <laughs> it's hard to overstate the, consu the, uh, the problem of the consumption and the abuse of alcohol in the late 19th century. Let me read one quotation from historian David Cartwright about, about uh, the, uh, the men, largely, of the West and the Pacific Northwest of that era. They were often a floating army of itinerant workers, variously known as tramps, hobos, navvies, shanty boys, and bindlestiffs. They moved from the country seeking construction, uh, seeking jobs in construction sites, lum lumber camps and canneries, threshing crews, and other places where temporary or seasonal jobs were available. Corkwright observed that money earned by those mostly single men did not go into the savings or support of family. Instead, they were, quote, dissipated in saloons, poker games, and brothels. Bachelor workers led a life of alternating work and spree until they finally got out, burned out, landed in jail, or entered beneath the dissecting knife on the coroner's slab. The Washington Territorial Alliance was formed in 18, Temperance Alliance was formed in 1874, and again, Whitworth was named president. He tried to get churches to organize for territorial prohibition. By 1880, territorial residents had passed a law requiring that saloons close on Sundays and that, again, saloon owners be liable for injuries attributable to intoxicating drinks. Eventually, citizens of state of Washington did vote to prohibit the sale of alcohol in 1914. But there was also a practical side to Whitworth. He needed to make some money to support his family. There was at least some, there was at least some money in surveying land. Here's a photograph of a land surveying party. Whitworth at one point became United States Deputy Surveyor, County Surveyor for King County, and City Surveyor for the City of Seattle. His political context helped him secure the job of Deputy Collector of Customs for the Puget Sound District, and we assume that Again, money was at the root of uh, these other vocational enterprises. They may also have encouraged him to become something of an entrepreneur. He became a mine owner on the east side of Lake Washington near Renton. Coal, and this is actually a coal mine uh, in, uh, near, near Renton, had been discovered in 1853. By 1865, Whitworth headed a group with Daniel Bagley, John Ross, Seleucius Garfield, and they organized the Lake Washington Coal Company. And shortly thereafter, they were mining coal. This became the Seattle Coal Company. They delivered high-quality coal, having to move it from Lake Washington through Lake Union to Puget Sound. It didn't last all that long, but we can see here again, Whitworth was a part of an early industry, an early entrepreneur in Washington Territory. Well, one of the early challenges faced by Whitworth was the Indian Wars of the period. Even before the Whitworths arrived in the Pacific Northwest, conflict had broken out in 1847 when the missionaries Marcus and Narcissa Whitman were killed by the Cayuse near the present-day town of Walla Walla. 
By the middle of the 1850s, a series of Indian wars had erupted throughout the region, and settlers took refuge in various stockades, such as this one. Reportedly, Whitworth, again seemingly fearless, traveled by horseback, armed with a gun, and attempted to minister to people in various communities during the Indian Wars. In 1863, he took the position of chief clerk of the Indian Department. We're not sure, again, if this appointment was accepted because of the need to support himself and his family. But nevertheless, he was present when some of the Nez Perce tribe agreed to surrender more than 90% of the land that had previously been given to them as part of the Treaty of 1855. Hopefully we can see in, in this uh, map the difference in the size between the dotted line marking the 1855 treaty and the shaded area marking the 1863 treaty. This turned out to be one of the most controver controversial treaties in Northwest Indian history. I think it's best to assume until we have evidence to the contrary that Whitworth reflected largely the views of his age. Most white Americans believe that Indians should be removed to smaller reservations. Native Americans should be educated in Western ways and converted to Christianity. All of these assumptions led him, like most Americans, to rationalize the seizure of land and the decimation of tribal culture. Like all of us, Whitworth was a product of his times. In some ways, he did seem to be a visionary and ahead of his time. But in other ways, and this would apply to his views on Native Americans, he simply believed what the vast majority of white Americans believed at the time. He was part of a movement and a generation that conquered the West, brought Western culture values to the region, and we are still struggling to understand how not only it happened, but how we should regard its legacy. To us in 2016 at Whitworth, he is best known for his role in the establishment of our college and university. At age 68, he helped organize the efforts in 1884 to establish an academy and that was the same year that Mary died of what probably was tuberculosis. He thought that Sumner, Washington, uh, just north and east of Tacoma, would be a good place for such a college. Why Sumner? It appears that Whitworth and his colleagues thought Sumner would be a more wholesome environment than either Seattle or Tacoma, as we might imagine. An early catalog said, well, I believe some exaggeration, that, quote, the moral tone of Sumner has a reputation above that of any city or town on the Pacific coast. It is free from saloon influences and is surrounded by a very intelligent, active, and enterprising people. The school opened uh, in the local Presbyterian church and used desks uh, built on the backs of pews, which we still have in our chapel. By 1889, a new building was completed that housed in classrooms, chapel, living quarters, dining room, music rooms, and a library. By 1890, trustees decided that the academy would be incorporated into Whitworth College. And in that first catalog, Whitworth administrators and faculty declared, again, a commitment to, quote, guarding well the moral and religious life of students, ever directing them in the pursuit of that learning and culture of heart and mind that make the finished scholar. And it's that commitment to heart and mind that has provided the underlying direction for Whitworth ever since. School fathers, including Whitworth, expressed high hopes for keeping their charges in line. Quote, the young men will be under the care and supervision of a faculty while in their rooms, and they will not be permitted to leave college grounds without first obtaining consent. That hope soon perished. Uh, Whitworth did not live long enough to see the college move to, uh, excuse me, uh, Whitworth did long, live long enough to see the college move to Tacoma, 
when it was perched on Inspiration Point and developed some great athletic teams. He did not live long enough to see the college relocated a second time to Spokane. In his last known written comment, published in 1907, just a few months before he passed away, Whitworth took time to reflect on what he had observed. Interestingly, though, rather than speak about the church or the educational institutions such as Whitworth that he'd been a part of, Whitworth chose to reflect on the technological advances that he had seen during nearly a century of life. He seemed utterly amazed at the advances from the time of the cutter, covered wagon to the emergence of the railroads, telegraph, telephone, automobile, airplane. All of these are described uh, in this piece. And he makes even mention of a submarine. He marveled at how communication and travel advances had shrunk the world. No longer did it take three weeks to get a letter from Portland to Seattle. He waxed eloquently about risk takers, the curious, the entrepreneurs, the inventors, the innovators of his lifetime. I think if he were with us today, hopefully he would smile at the way in which we love his neck beard or chin curtain as some call it. But I do think he could give a stirring speech to all of us. He would urge us to not be afraid of the unknown. He would say to not be afraid of that restless spirit within you. He would push us to travel and see new parts of the world. I think he would push us to be curious about others and what it is that we don't know about the world and be less certain perhaps about what we do know about the world. I can imagine that he might admit to his own blind spots, call us to be vigilant against ours. I can imagine that he would thank the students who come to Whitworth from out of state from different countries, from all different identities and backgrounds. I do believe he would appreciate the courage and the risk that all students take when they come to college. He would encourage students to take courses that are out of their comfort level. He would encourage them to get to know people that are different from themselves. And don't give in to those who are appealing to your basic fears. I think he would say to all of us how important it is to think about what it means to commit yourself to making this a better place. He believed that we should commit ourselves to social institutions. For all its faults, I'm guessing that he would still say that the church has a future and we should believe in the church. He would still believe in schools and colleges and universities. He would likely be sympathetic with our frustrations and the failures of those institutions, but I think his message would be don't give up. And lastly, as a man who believed in the gospel, he would encourage us to appreciate the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. He likely would say that Christianity still has something of importance to say to the rest of the world. I think what's remarkable about his life upon reflection is how seriously he tried to live out his Christianity in, in the world, believing that Christianity, again, could make a great impact. He believed that the gospel could speak to one's heart in profound ways. He believed that education was essential to the cultivation of the mind. George Whitworth, happy 200th birthday. You are still looking good. You are still speaking to us about risk and courage and commitment to Christ. Christ and yes, we'll continue to glory in that great neck beard, but there is again a lot more to you than meets the eyes. Thank you for what you did to help found this institution, and yes, you are the man.
Thank you.